This is episode 221 of That Shakespeare Life. Make sure you check out bonus content related to today's show inside the detailed show notes. This is a special patrons area for our show where we have bonus woodcuts and drawings from Conrad Gessner, as well as other bonus history you can explore by signing up as a patron. It expands right on our regular show notes page, or you can sign up right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Gessner lived among a circle of intellectuals who were natural scientists. They were always out collecting specimens of this and that, and they needed to get images of those things. All of them did. And so they would draw them. them. They would draw them themselves. And Gessner became very, very proficient at it. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The true example of a Renaissance man, a person who is great with many talents or areas of knowledge, Conrad Gessner joins the ranks of herbalists like William Turner and John Gerard as not only influences on Shakespeare, but examples of the influence of Renaissance thought on life in Elizabethan England. Conrad Gassner's works give us wonderful samples of thought and life from the Renaissance time period, including spectacular images of rhinoceroses, unicorns, monkfish, along with regular ordinary animals like dogs and cats. His works are printed prolifically, and they were consumed regularly in England, most likely by Shakespeare himself. Having completed over 70 publications in his lifetime, Conrad Gessner is a powerhouse of information, and his surviving works provide vital links to the mindset and understanding of the world that comes from the Renaissance. Here today to share with us what Conrad Gessner was like, the works he completed, and exactly how it is we're supposed to spell his name is our guest, Dan Hooley. Dan Hooley is Professor Emeritus of Classics at the University of Missouri. He's written fairly extensively on Roman poetry and classical reception in England and early modern Europe. He has also written about mountains and climbing in the ancient world and later, and his interest in the Swiss polymath Conrad Gessner was prompted by Gessner's Mountain Epistles, early forays into the aesthetics of mountainscapes. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Cassidy. uh, Thank you for inviting me along. Why was Conrad Gessner considered the father of bibliography, of all things? It's an interesting story. In 1545, Conrad was born in 1516 and died in 1565. So he was an early 16th century character, about uh, half a century before Shakespeare. They overlap by one year, as you probably know. But in the middle of his life, just about 1545, he published this thing, which was, it's called, he called it the Bibliotheca Universalis. It was the first comprehensive bibliography of all works published in Greek or Latin or Hebrew to date. Uh, It included about uh, 12,000 works in its first edition and about 3,000 authors in its first edition, but it was subsequently enlarged to contain many more 
interestingly, it, as you might guess from the Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, it was a kind of Renaissance humanist kind of exercise. These are the materials that the humanists were interested in, the ancient Greeks and Romans and, and their literatures and philosophy and science and so on. So this was a compendium of all of that. But in addition, uh, contemporary science was also published or written in Latin as well. So these works were included in the bibliography. And so you have a kind of kind of universal look at what we know, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, the collected body of knowledge all contained in books for the period. It was really quite remarkable as an achievement. And it caught on immediately. It was extraordinary. It was uh, people bought the book and added to it and adapted it and translated it and so on and so forth. So it became quite significant in its time. It, along with his even more impressive and ambitious history of animals, Historia Animalium, and the history of plants, which was published posthumously, made his name, his current, his reputation in his day. And, and probably the chief reasons that we know him, we, that is to say, collectively, history, historians of science and other people know him or have heard of him now. But he was famous for quite a long time. And I'm quite sure Shakespeare probably had heard of him, if not having read much of what he'd written, but certainly had heard the name. Many of our listeners might know Conrad Gessner for his elaborate catalog of animal sketches, the ones that you mentioned from his Historium Animalium. Then I know we've shared detailed pictures that he's drawn on, on our show before, yet in the chapter about Gessner in the Studies in German Literature, Linguistics, and Culture, Dan says that Conrad Gessner's work seems, quote, impossibly broad, end quote. Dan, will you explain for us what all Conrad Gessner was working on or prolific at during his lifetime that makes his work seem impossibly broad? I think you've caught me out in a typical coolly overstatement there. <laughs> it probably wasn't impossibly broad. Well, as you can tell, as you know from his history, of plants and animals. Conrad Gessner was a natural scientist, and so he published an enormous amount of material in the area of natural science, not just the two big books, but lots of intermediate publications along the way. He was, in addition, a, a, a doctor, a, a medical doctor, and he published uh, a number of articles on medicine, surgery, gynecology, the concoction of medicines, uh, that sort of thing. In addition to that, he was what we would call today a classical philologist, as were many people who were educated in that Renaissance humanist tradition. He knew Latin and Greek very, very well. And people who studied those ancient literatures tended to exercise their interest by publishing editions and commentaries of ancient texts. And Gessner did a bunch of these. He published uh, important first editions of figures like Aelian, who wrote on animals, and uh, wrote a commentary on Aristotle, who wrote about animals as well. Uh, he uh, published the Editio Princeps, which is the first edition of the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, who was the Stoic Roman emperor, who wrote these uh, important meditations on Stoic philosophy and how to keep your mind cool in all kinds of situations. And it's a uh, it was, he had prepared this edition from a manuscript, the only extant manuscript, and his edition, that Editio Prenkeps, became the basis for all subsequent editions of that author, Marcus Aurelius. So many, many others. He 
he was a, a linguist as well. He was very fluent in lots of languages. He wrote a thing called Mithridates, which is a, a history of languages. It traced about 130 different languages. And in it, he exercised his own talents by translating the Lord's Prayer into 22 different languages by himself. And uh, uh, it's quite extraordinary. He wrote uh, all kinds of things. He wrote on, on nutrition and food. He loved cheese. So he wrote a treatise on milk and milk products, as a matter of fact. One of the things that drew me to Gessner was his writing on mountain climbing. Actually, uh, in my later years as an academic and in retirement, I've uh, turned to the study of the literatures of mountains. And Gessner was a prescient student of the appreciation of it's a sensibility, pre-romantic sensibility of uh, that some mountains as great glorious things. And uh, and it's they're quite remarkable essays. He said he has two of them. He published those as well. So a number of things. You suggested that impossibly broad might be an Huli overstatement, yeah. but I think it sounds like it might have been pretty accurate. There anything you could be interested in, it looks like Conrad Gessner will have written something about he it. He was there. He pretty much was, as a matter of fact. But the, the, the thing was, I think the reason I say it's an overstatement is that he was writing at a time in a period intellectual stage of the history of history of intellectual thought where the polymath, the person who was interested in lots of different things and not just the dilettante, but a, someone who was interested in, in a wide variety of subjects, but was also very well deeply learned in those subjects. So somebody who is competent in lots of different areas. And that that idea of the polymath was a kind of a central tenet of the European Renaissance, uh, the Italian Renaissance of the previous century and the the Northern European Renaissance of the, of the 16th century. They believed generally in the perfectibility of the human mind, that the human mind, given enough exercise and room and food, intellectual food to feed on could develop almost limitlessly. And it became a kind of a, a deal, a, a deal to, to be someone widely and deeply learned. Gessner was particularly good at it. In the 17th century and beyond, with changes with the scientific revolution and discoveries of the huge complexity, physics and biology and botany and all the things, all the sciences, it became necessary to specialize in areas. And so the area of a specialization, intellectual specialization develops in the 17th century and afterward. But before this, a number of people are, are polymaths. Copernicus was one, um, and many, many others. Galileo was another one, who were widely and deeply learned. And maybe pushing it a bit far, and I think I have to, to, to warn you a little a bit about that, but, but Shakespeare was of a similar ilk. He was a voracious reader. He had a tremendous memory. And I can't but think that the figure of Prospero at the end of that play, The Tempest, uh, represents this kind of intellectual hero that Gessner and others was, embodied that kind of grasp of everything, all the spirits, all the, all the knowledge of the air, the water, and the earth, and was able to control it in some sense or other. And so when Prospero buries that book or sinks it or drowns it, fathoms deep in the ocean at the end of that play. It may be in some sense, the kind of resignation of that, not only Shakespeare's craft and career and life as a dramatist, but also maybe a kind of saying, maybe a, a statement about that this kind of heroism is no longer possible. 
the, the things are moving along so quickly that uh, someone like this can't exist anymore. As much as I love William Shakespeare, and of course we do here at That Shakespeare Life, but (laughs) I don't think I can place him in the category of Renaissance man personally, but you definitely can see from the study of people like Conrad Gessner, as you mentioned, you know, Galileo and Copernicus, you can see where the foundations and the inspiration of characters like Prospero would definitely come from and the the interest and attraction to why those kinds of figures would be put in his plays for sure. Now I want to share over to you, you'll be able to see this in the video version of our podcast or in the show notes for today uh, so you can see what I'm talking about. But this is the image of Conrad Gessner's 1551 drawing of a rhinoceros. This is published in his Historium Animalium. Again, you can see that in the show notes. But Dan, I want to ask you about drawings like this one. I mean, this is incredibly detailed and it's pretty close to accurate if you see modern rhinoceroses these look this way and he's got the horn and the armor all over is exaggerated a little bit but they are armored animals so where did conrad gessner find out about these animals i mean did he travel did he see these in person or where was he drawing his depictions of animals from no it's really it's really a complicated uh, it's a good question it's a very good question and and the answer is kind of complicated to uh, answer the immediate question about the rhinoceros, it's a borrowed drawing. Uh, he drew it, redrew it, but it's a borrowed drawing from Albrecht Durer, who was uh, a famous artist and woodcut, created uh, fantastic woodcuts, and this is one of them. And Durer himself had drawn his rhinoceros with those artificial chain mail kind of armor platelets that sort of hang down around the animal from a drawing that was. It was uh, done by someone whose name we don't know, or a description who had seen an Indian elephant. And he made a drawing, passed it, our Durer got his hands on it. And then Gessner subsequently got his hands on Durer's in, engraving or uh, drawing of it and included that in his history on Mobbingham. So that's the immediate short answer to that, that example. But first of all, Gessner was a very competent draftsman. He was an artist and could draw particularly plants or he was very good at drawing plants that he would find on his alpine quests going up to botanize and draw them he drew some of the animals in the historia animalium he borrowed images and woodcuts from other people or his publisher borrowed them never i think you know this that woodcuts were in circulation among among publishers in the 16th century that that they could rent them and borrow them and put them with them to different uses than they were originally tended, intended. So you have, for instance, in, in Gessner's Historia Animalium, lots of pictures of dogs because there were lots of woodcuts of dogs running around. And so they put them in there and very few woodcuts of other animals that they had no images of. Gessner didn't travel widely beyond Northern Europe. So the drawings that he would have done or could have done were of animals he would have seen in ordinary life, goats, sheep, horses, dogs, that sort of cats, that kind of thing. The other images that are included in the Historia are images drawn from elsewhere. He did hire also a draftsman, at least one of them, to make drawings for him too. So there are lots of ways of inputting these images into the, into the final publication. Some of the images, as you probably know, 
are quite fantastic. They're not real animals. <laughs> they were things that probably should exist, like the manticore and the unicorn, but alas, don't. They were drawn from other texts. Uh, there was a whole tradition of early Greek and then on through the medieval period writing about animals. In the medieval period, these were called bestiaries, and they were moralized images of animals, uh, stories of animals, Christianized, moralized stories of them with illustrations, very interesting illustrations. And some of these made their way into the Historia Anamalium, copied out and, and would consummate them, that sort of thing. Some images came from old maps showing sea monsters in the North Sea with great teeth and tusks and things that didn't exist, of course. There are mermaids and mermen and monkfish and bishopfish and all kinds of crazy things. But Gessner included them because there was some authority for their existence, and he simply didn't know that they didn't exist. So he put them in with descriptions. Uh, he didn't say much about them very often, but... Uh, Give himself an out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> someone says this is there. Yeah, and they're very pretty. <laughs> they're and really they're, amazing, yeah. Yeah. Do you, you know the story of the jackalope, which is the mythical animal of the American West? That uh, you could. Yes. <laughs> this, is, this is a jackrabbit with uh, with horns, right? With antlers. Yes. Well, the, it appears first in Gessner, as a matter of fact. No, it does. <laughs> yes, That's it amazing. does. Yes, it does. Gessner, there's a rabbit with. He said that he drew these images ad vivum, ad vivum, and ad skeleton. He was looking at a live animal or a skeleton of an animal. And sometimes he was looking at, at remains of bones and antlers, and somebody had sent him an antler, a skull, with said this was part of a jackrabbit or something. I forgot what it was called. He had some strange name for it. It's, of course, not true, but he was the first to fall for it. <laughs> that's, well, that's fantastic, because as a kid growing up, people would tell us, you know, look for the jackalope. And, and yeah. we, we totally, hook, line, and sinker, took this story oh, and would sure. constantly be looking for the jackalope. So it's, it's nice to know I am in good company. You're in good company. <laughs> Now, Conrad Gesner's works are quite impressive, and they're notable for this minute detail. And I know you mentioned that he hired a draftsman for some of his drawings, but was Conrad Gesner personally educated in art and illustration, or was he just naturally, you know, talented in this way? Or did he go to school, I guess is what I'm asking. No, he didn't, actually. I mean, he went to school, of course, but he didn't go to school as an artist to, to study art. It's not a sort of general parallel with Shakespeare. He was a uh, born to a rather poor family. As a matter of fact, very poor family. He had to be shipped out to an uncle at age three uh, because his father couldn't afford to, to raise him in the household. And uh, went to school, studied the traditional curriculum of Greek and Latin and Hebrew and, and earned his doctorate in philosophy and then his subsequent doctor of medicine degree. But drawing was something that he did. He just had a knack for, but it was also something that that period cultivated, generally speaking. And Gessner lived among a circle of intellectuals who were natural scientists. They were always out collecting specimens of this and that, and they needed to get images of those things. All of them did. And so they would draw them, draw them. They would draw them themselves. And Gessner became very, very proficient at it. And, and especially his his plant drawings, you see the fine detail that he wrote, that, it, that he was able to include. It's quite extraordinary. I wish we could pass that knowledge on. I'd take a course. But uh, he, he seems to have been just naturally well disposed to representing things on paper. 
what was Conrad Gessner's official profession? I mean, was he a an author or an illustrator or what, how did he make his money to be able to eat and support his own family? Barely he made enough to support his own family, his wife. He was a language teacher. He, after studying at various cities throughout Europe uh, uh, on the course to his degrees, he came back to Zurich where he had been born and where he went to school himself from, and went, went back to the, the school called the Carolinum, which was the um, School of Theology in Zurich. And he was given a rather lowly position there. He was given the job of just teaching languages, uh, not theology, not philosophy, although he did teach philosophy, he did find a way to do that, but uh, primarily a language teacher and a practicing physician. So he did, in fact, uh, earn some money as a doctor. He had to work so hard. Uh, it was very interesting. He had to work so hard to make enough to get by. And the primary sort of source of income for that was the publication of books. So that's where he concentrated his work. He would teach. He got a small salary for that. He got more money from publishers, Rush Hour and uh, his brothers eventually got in the business of publishing as well. Through his books, which are not copyrighted, unfortunately, he was able to make uh, barely make a living. But one of the most poignant things about his life is that throughout, you see these, we see letters that he had written to various people, the, the Zurich City Council, for instance, or, or Zwingli, who was the temporal and spiritual uh, leader of Zurich, and he was succeeded by Bullinger. Letters to both of them describing his poverty and the difficulty he had maintaining uh, an adequate income to do the work he needed to do, work day and night publishing these things. And in the end, he probably overworked. Uh, he died prematurely, nearly almost 50 years old. He had had a couple of doses of plague already and been weakened by that, but also weakened by just the sheer effort of writing day in and day out to produce, what, some 70-plus works of books, 70-plus books that he had published in his lifetime and many more afterward, yeah, they were published, published posthumously. So, so he was, uh, in a sense, driven to death by the very work that made him famous uh, and made his, made his reputation. Uh, it, it's kind of a sad and poignant story. It is, and I'm impressed with some of the translations that you said he did. I mean, you pointed out that he did them 22 translations of Lord's Prayer by himself I, into, uh, I think you said 22 different languages. 22, yeah. yeah exactly. And and that, yeah. I mean, that that blows me away that one man could sit down and do that. I mean, there are teams of people that work on translations of the Bible as like their full-time mm -hmm. gig now. So it's, it's amazing what he was able to do. And, and it is quite sad to think that his works are so respected today as these, you know, examples of, of great Renaissance man type thing. And, and to think that he didn't benefit personally from that during his life more than, right. more than right. we know of. But it is a kind of poignant end to all of that, that the, he was given awarded in the last year of his life, he was awarded uh, a coat of arms as Shakespeare was. And with that coat by, by Ferdinand I, who was a Holy Roman emperor at the time, this entailed some copyright protection. So ironically, in the last year of his life, he finally succeeded in getting what he needed to do to make an adequate living, but he was so weakened by that time that he was unable to, to carry on. Wow.
Yeah. Maybe maybe one day they will make a, a movie of his life. I can I can see it now. It was, <laughs> yeah, he was an extraordinary guy. I mean, he was it was he was not only this great intellectual hero, but uh, he was well loved. Everybody liked him. He had enormous contacts throughout Europe, uh, including many in Britain. As a matter of fact, one of the volumes that was produced with the Historiatum Malium was a, a separate volume of images from the history. And that was dedicated to Elizabeth I, which is quite remarkable that he would, I guess he was fishing for some patronage, but quite extraordinary. He had a, a good friend named William Turner, who was an Englishman. Um, do you know William Turner? He was the author of one of the first English herbals uh, or herbals. I think it was 45 or something like that, 1545. He published this thing. And uh, they exchanged, they were, Turner was a Protestant, finally became a Calvinist and fled to Germany and Switzerland when under Henry and then Mary, and then returned under Elizabeth and uh, they continued to exchange, became friends of, of Gessner's and continued to exchange letters and specimens. They would gather specimens and send them back and forth. And anyway, Gessner through Turner becomes part of the tradition that ends up with the Girard herbal that Shakespeare certainly saw. Yeah, we've covered William Turner and John Gerard on our show yeah. before his, and they were all published right there together, I think. I'm pretty sure William Turner's herbal was published around 1551, and then John Gerard published his herbal, I, I believe it was 1597, but I'm doing like a rough look over here, and there's also at least one, his general history of plants did get published in 16. 1636, according to Royal Collection Trust. So that one must have been published after he died. Afterward, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. The British connections, the international connections were all there. It was quite an extraordinary life to be living at the center of this circle of very alive uh, researchers and scientists and uh, all exchanging information in a way kind of paradigmatic, paradigmatic of how it should be. People using each other's work, uh, sharing information back and forth, and uh, and uh, Gessner seemed to be at the at the hub of all this kind of activity. I think one of our most pressing questions about Conrad Gessner, especially in the digital age when we are going to look him up by having to type his name in somewhere, is the great debate over how to spell it. I've seen his <laughs> name spelled with a C, other times with a K, and sometimes there's two S's and sometimes there's only one. It's hard to feel like you're a knowledgeable person when you're trying to search him online. So I wonder if you would, Dan, help us look smart the next time we're trying to write about Conrad Gessner. What is the right way to spell his name? Well, you know, it's, it's very funny, isn't it? That it, given all the, ver- the ways in which Shakespeare himself was uh, spelled or his name was spelled uh, by himself, by Shakespeare, that we sort of need to have this kind of spelling regularity. But that's the way it is these days, isn't it? Gessner himself, when he was writing German works, and he did write several German works, spelled his name with two S's. With a C and two S's, Conrad, hard C, hard Beeler sound, and the two S's. So that's probably the correct German and therefore now English way of spelling his name. The single S comes from his Latin works. Uh, and Latin has a kind of funny dislike of three different consonants in a row. So uh, his Latin name was Gesneris. That's how he Latinized his name with the U.S. ending, Gesneris. So 
instead of G-E-S-S-N-E-R, it has to be G-E-S-N-E-R. Just two letters, two consonants together. And that consonant said that, that S is voiced, it loses its unvoiced quality because it's next to a sibilant and, uh, and it becomes gesneris, the accent is on the antipenult and so on. It's, uh, that's there. The C, however, was a CK controversy, it really dates from spelling reforms that postdated in German, that postdated Gessner's life. So while Gessner was alive, C was just a regular hard you know, K sound, basically. And so okay. there, they, he would never have spelled his name with a K. Well, there you have it. So there you go. Shouldn't spell his name with a K. <laughs> we'll go. go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the German spelling just because my Latin is is bad, and we won't, we'll just stick with <laughs> we'll just stick with the German. But thank sure. you very much. Sure. I know we would love to explore Conrad Gessner's life further. Obviously, just what we've touched on here today is is really pretty exciting. But we'd like to start with some reliable places to begin. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, um, I think uh, there was an early biography. If if people want to just get in and just find out what Gessner did and how his life was lived, uh, there was an early biography written by Henry Morley, uh, just called Conrad Gessner. And we can look at the bibliographical details in the notes afterward. But this was based on the first biography of Gessner, which was written way back in 1566 by Gessner's friend Josiah Simler. It's basically a retelling of that German biography, or maybe it was Latin, I don't know, biography that that Simler wrote. If one wants to do something more, look at something more contemporary, there is a book by Hans Wedeck, Conrad Gessner, a bio-bibliography, which is very, very good. It's especially good on the trials and tribulations of Gessner's life and a full and uh, very complete biography. Alfredo Sarai, if your Italian is any good, wrote a biography, another bio-bibliography uh, of him. And it's it comes later, 1990. And it's very, very good, as a matter of fact. There are a couple of things that uh, you know, I might add in here. If one is interested in the character of natural science in Gessner's day, Ryan Ogilvie wrote a book, a wonderful book called The Science of Describing, which covers Gessner and his fellow Zurich scientists in the middle part of the 16th century. And it's quite good because it's a, it, it sets up real distinctions between the kind of science that they were doing then and the kind of science that we sort of know now. It's quite informative. And uh, finally, if one is interested in the images in Gessner's materials, Sashiko Kushikawa wrote a, a really nice article, The Sources of Gessner's Pictures for the Historia Automalium in the Annals of Science. And we can include those bibliographical details in the notes as well. Absolutely. We will link to all of these in the show notes for today's episode and the title for Ryan Ogilvie's book. Did, what was it called again? It's called The Science of Describing. The Science of Describing. We will place links to all of these works in the, in the show notes for today so that you can find them and go check them out. Now, Dan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. 
Well, I've always, I'm such a boring person. I've always said to myself that if I had to live on a desert island somewhere, I would take just the complete works of Virgil, um, the Roman poet Virgil, simply because I find it the most exquisite poetry written in any language at all. It's just just gorgeous. I never tire of rereading everything that Virgil wrote. That's the simple and short answer. I will try to do a little horse trading with you. Uh, (laughs) Since I'm not a religious person, I could trade out maybe the Bible for the essays of Montaigne, which I find absolutely delightful every time I read them in French or in English. They're just just wonderful essays. I uh, reading the his essay on on books the other night and just fell into a fit of giggles, really listening to his description of reading Cicero. It's just hilarious and wonderful stuff, so surprising and so interesting. So and in this period, the sixteenth century, so can't go wrong, right? So it's 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 right on point for sure. And with a review like Exquisite Poetry, I think you've got us all wanting to go pick up Virgil and the essays of Montaigne probably this afternoon. <laughs> Good. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? What drew me to Gessner was his mountain essays, and I'm still doing that sort of thing. So I've written an essay on classical mountains and a couple of essays now on Gessner's mountains and the sublime and that sort of thing. And I'm kind of interested in taking it to indigenous perceptions of mountains in the Americas and other places, basically. We, this is the unspoken sort of voice that we need to, to, to recognize and to, to see. And you can see it in stories and tales, usually oral, but, but extraordinary. And, and there's plenty of material out there. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now is getting toward something in along those lines. Well, it sounds very exciting. We'll look forward to seeing that in the future. Dan Hooley, thank you so much for being here and taking us through the life and works of Conrad Gessner. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you. To explore some of the resources we talk about today, including that woodcut of the rhinoceros by Conrad Gessner, be sure to check out our show notes for today's episode at CassidyCash.com slash EP221. The regular show notes that go along with all of our episodes are equipped with more information on our guests. This week, you'll find out more about Dr. Dan Hooley, as well as direct links to the list of resources he recommends you use if you want to explore Conrad Gessner's life further. The show notes page is also where you can find the detailed show notes expansion button. That is the orange Patreon button you'll find there. That expands for patrons of our show and includes even more history about Conrad Gessner and a lot of the visual content we can't share here on the audio of the show. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 221. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP221. That Shakespeare Life is researched and hosted by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. Just like Shakespeare, our show is powered by our patrons. Listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons are a vital part of keeping our show going here each week, and we really appreciate your support. If you like the episodes we bring to you each week and you enjoy learning about these interesting facts about life in turn of the 17th century England, then we invite you to participate with us in even more history on Patreon. Being our patron helps support our work and you get special extras like the detailed show notes, but there's also DIY history kits and you can even join our brand new Shakespeare book club. There's a lot of things to check out and be a part of over there at Patreon. So find all of these things and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life.
That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.